the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following is a conversation between Amir Pasik, Dean of the Lilly School of Philanthropy, and Denver Frederick, host of The Business of Giving, on AM 970 The Answer, WNYM, in New York City. Every industry has changed dramatically over the course of the past quarter century. This would certainly include the field of philanthropy, which has truly become a profession. And one of the leaders in the professionalization of this field has been the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. And here with us to discuss that, and the nonprofit sector at large, is Amir Pasek, the Dean of the Lilly School of Philanthropy. Good evening, Amir, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Thank you for having me. I think there are probably a number of listeners out there who were not aware that such a school even existed. So let me begin by asking you, why a school of philanthropy? Well, we started to, as a center um, of philanthropy um, over 30 years ago, and we believe that generosity and caring for each other and giving are such a fundamental part of the human condition and a fundamental part of our society that they deserve a lot more research and a lot more discussion than they have been getting from the conventional disciplines. Mm -hmm. Well, give us a sampling of the kind of courses you offer at the school and what types of degrees you confer. Well, one of the most popular courses that we do is the history of volunteering and philanthropy in America. And that is one of the courses that a lot of the undergraduates who come to our university take and they become um, fascinated by the importance of voluntary activity in building our country, and not only our country, but civilizations around the world. And then our, when the students come into the program, they take courses on the ethics of philanthropy. What is good philanthropy? They take courses on the economics the law of the nonprofit sector. They take courses on comparative civil society to understand the context around the world. And then they take some more practical courses on grant making and fundraising so that they get a full picture of both sides of philanthropy, if you will, both the giving side and the asking side. And then they're always required to do internships and apply a lot of the knowledge that they learn as well. Where is the school located? We're located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Oh, there you go. So now, do you have to go out there to take these courses or do you offer um, courses in other cities around the country or perhaps even online? In terms of the academic courses, the master's program is available entirely online, and we have many students who join us uh, from different parts of the country and even internationally, and the first time we encounter them is when they come for graduation. Uh, In terms of the bachelor's and the Ph.D. program, you do have to be in residence. But outside of our master's program, we also have a training program which we, to confuse people, call the fundraising school, Mm -hmm. which is a non-credit training program for fundraisers that's been around for quite a while, and that's available in 18 cities around the country um, and uh, online as well. The Lilly School partners with Giving USA, and what you guys do is you issue an annual report on philanthropy for the year. How much was given in 2018, the last year reported? Is that number going up? Is that number going down? Or are we kind of just going around and around? Well, we uh, Americans gave about $420 billion uh, last year, and the Giving USA is the annual measure of where the money comes from, is it individuals, foundations, and corporations, and then where it goes to, mm-hmm. religion, education, <clears throat> health care, and, and so forth. 
And it's, um, it has been keeping up, if you will. Giving has been keeping up. It's been about 2% of GDP uh, for many decades. And we've seen uh, last year in particular, giving went up nominally, meaning the dollar amount went up. But if you account for inflation, it went down a slight bit. And many of our economists believe that this is the initial effect of the tax reform that we have been through. But it remains to be seen what the long-term effect of that will be. Yeah, it's really hard to tell because I do remember December was a horrific month for the stock market. And I wonder if that may have had an impact as well. Absolutely. The, so the level of giving in the United States is very closely connected to, correlated very closely with the S&P 500, so with the, the level of the stock market. And you're absolutely right. This, our experts look at the volatility and the decline at the end of uh, 2018 and worry that that was one of the reasons. So, in, I'm sorry. And looking at this report, Amir, last year and over the last several years, um, do you detect any trends either hopeful or cause for concern? Well, I think the hopeful trend is that uh, giving has maintained its 2% level of the economy, if you will, and overall giving seems to be keeping pace. One of the things we we have detected is that the number of households in the United States that give is going down slightly mm-hmm. over the last uh, 10, 15 years. So What's over, that percentage now? It's it's around the, the low 50s. It used to be above 60%. And uh, we used to confidently say that Americans give more frequently than they vote. <laughs> and I'm not sure we can say that anymore, which is also uh, troubling because we think that giving is an important part of our democracy as well. So there's a lot of us who are worried that the level of giving by everyday folks may be going down. Yeah, and I think there's an assumption that when 50% of the people or families give, it's the same families every year, but that really isn't the case, is it? No, it's not the case. I mean, there's a lot of change over the years, and some people give every, you know, um, one year, and then they'll wait and give uh, a little bit later, so that there's uh, a lot of um, nuance in terms of that 50%, because it's not always the same 50%. The faculty of the Lilly Family School wrote a very comprehensive piece titled The Eight Myths of U.S. Philanthropy. And I really enjoyed reading that. And I want to talk about a couple of those with you. And we'll start with religion. Uh, 23% of Americans now say they have no religious affiliation. That's as many as Catholics or evangelicals. So it only follows that there is a decline in religious giving. Would that be the case? Well, that it's again, there's the reason we call the myth is because that's not the whole story. There's mm-hmm. certainly less uh, formal affiliation of especially emerging generations with formal congregations. And uh, giving to congregations, narrowly measured, has been going down over the last 25 years or so. It used to be that over half of all American giving would go to congregation-like entities. Mm-hmm. But what, what researchers also look at are uh, Catholic social services, World Vision, a lot of uh, nonprofit social service-oriented organizations that are actually imbued with some kind of a religious mission. And they're a big part of the social service sector as well, so that there is a kind of religious giving that takes place that's not going only to congregations. And then even if you look at congregations, there is important differences and nuances there. There's some uh, larger congregations that are continuing to grow and some of the smaller ones, for example, that are experiencing the declines. So you overlook a lot of the uh, important uh, features of what's happening in terms of giving and uh, um, religion if you just simply say it's it's going down in one direction. Very interesting. Um, here's another one. You hear in many development departments, it takes as much work to get a small gift as it does a large gift. So focus on those big gifts because small gifts don't really matter. 
Do small gifts matter? I think small gifts um, matter a lot. And, you know, if you're t- talking about the, you know, if, if organizations existed for one day and you needed that one gift to survive that one day, of course you would go for the very large gift. But you want organizations to last over long periods of time, especially if they have missions that fit longer periods and, and need to be there over long periods of time. And one of the things we know that your large gifts of tomorrow begin as small gifts today. <laughs> so building the base uh, for the future is important. So you have to focus on small gifts. Of course, there's also particular uh, issues where small gifts are crucial. For example, in um, natural disasters and emergencies, uh, when people kind of surge to help people in need, that's usually the result of a lot of very small gifts that uh, help uh, uh, strangers who are often in different parts of the country. So small gifts and emergencies matter a, a, a heck of a lot. Yeah, and I think the health of a nonprofit organization is really correlated to the number of small gifts they have because when you see a few organizations that are dependent upon one or two big gifts, if they ever go away, those gifts, they're in real trouble. Absolutely, and that's you know it's it's a measure of the relevance of your organization as well. The number of small uh, people, small donors that they have, because it it measures uh, kind of the the the, the breadth of your um, champions, the, the breadth of the champions that have you have that support you. So it, it it's also a measure of your relevance. If you have one person or one foundation who thinks you're doing great work, that says something different than if you have thousands of people saying. This is my organization. Right. And donors are more than donors. They're advocates. They talk about it. They host things. They participate in walks. They really help spread the word. Absolutely. Another thing you hear often is that African-Americans are a new and emergency demographic in charitable giving. What is the myth surrounding that sentiment? Well, yes, the the myth is that, uh, as you say, that they're emerging, that African-Americans and other underrepresented communities are now just beginning to give when we see that there have been um, donors, African-American donors from even before um, uh, before the Civil War, um, and one of our professors, Tyrone Freeman, is writing a book right now that will come next year on the life of Madame C.J. Walker, mm-hmm. who was the first self-made American woman millionaire and happened to be African-American and lived around the time of John D. Rockefeller. And she's just one indication of how we have kind of overlooked uh, the importance of African-American giving over the history of our country, which has been substantial. One last one, Amir, and we'll turn our attention to endowments. And at a time when we face so many urgent issues, many people believe that these endowments could be far better used if they were working to address these critical needs instead of being all tied up sitting there. Um, What would your take be on that? Well, certainly in some situations that might be the case, but it used to be a time when, and many organizations still believe that endowments are critical to be able to, uh, them to... um, uh, sustain their uh, work over long periods of time, and they endowments can cover things like uh, information technology, human resources, and marketing that are not necessarily seen as particularly uh, urgent to current donors. But for the health of an organization, they allow them to do their important work over long, longer periods of time and sustain their impact in a way that kind of simply project-based or program-based funding uh, does not allow them to do. Let's move on. Um, Under the auspices of the Women's Philanthropy Institute, which is at the Lilly School, you recently quantified the number of charities in the U.S. dedicated to women and girls and the amount of charitable giving that they receive. What were those findings? 
Well, this was a very important study because we have we cre- increasingly see the importance of investing in women and girls, and yet we didn't really have a baseline to understand how many organizations there were and how much money they were giving. So uh, this was the beginning of a, a new index that will establish a baseline so that we can see how giving to women's and girls' issues um, increases over time. And what we found was that the, uh, the, the, the amount was relatively modest, less than 2% of giving. Uh, goes to women's and girls' issues the Goodness. way we've me- we, 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 we measured it. But now at least we have a, a baseline so that, that we can, uh, uh, we, we can um, um, uh, measure it going forward. Yeah, that makes a big difference when you're tracking something like that, and yeah. uh, it gives people an incentive to, to give more and move that number up. Another index you have is the Global Philanthropy Environment Index, and you look across the world and you take into account the factors in different countries, I think 79 all told, which uh, foster philanthropic uh, uh, contributions and also which ones inhibit them. Tell us about that. Well, this is a, a, an effort to measure the ease of doing philanthropy in all these con- in, in 80 countries around the world. And we look at things like um, the, the tax situation, uh, the um, the government's policies toward philanthropy. We look at the cultural situation. We look at the ease of making gifts inside the country and making gifts across borders. And what we do find is kind of a little bit what you would expect, that North America and Northwest Europe uh, lead, lead the world in terms of the uh, ease of doing philanthropy in those countries. But the purpose of the index is not simply to create a popularity list mm-hmm. or kind of a list of who's, who's the, uh, the top and who's at the bottom. It's really to start a deeper dialogue about what, what does philanthropy and caring for each other mean in different countries. So we're using really the index as a way to begin a conversation with uh, people who are interested in philanthropy in different countries to better understand, well, what does philanthropy mean in your country? How do you care for each other? What is the role of the government? Also with the purpose of informing policymakers so that they can make more informed decisions about philanthropy as it increases in interest in many countries, policymakers are not ready to understand what it means for them. Often they feel uh, that philanthropy supports civil society that may potentially threaten the government. Uh Others are trying to figure out how do we collaborate with this sector to help improve our impact in society. And and then there's other people who have made some wealth or trying to understand what it means for them to have kind of these unprecedented levels of wealth and how that can have a social impact that is beneficial for their country. What did you find out about uh, philanthropy in China? Well, I think China, we, we've, we've, we've found you know, important restrictions uh, on, on the freedom of people to be able to uh, give money uh, freely. And there were some uh, recent um, uh, policy decisions that have made uh, the activities of outside international entities more difficult in China. But at the same time, we see a enthusiasm for the potential for philanthropy to um, engage in social services in China. Mm-hmm. Earlier this year, Amir, you announced a new program to help Muslim American nonprofits expand their fundraising and other capabilities and also help other nonprofits better understand the practice and tradition of philanthropy and Islam. Tell us more about that initiative and what are some of the charitable motivations of Muslims? Well, as uh, Islam is one of the fastest growing um, religions in the United States, and it's often misunderstood. And uh, one of the hopes of our effort is to support the um, Muslim philanthropic sector in the United States mm-hmm. to become more professionalized, to have a better talent, uh, and we hope to contribute to their 
um, understanding of how to run organizations better and how to understand the, the whole sector more thoroughly, but also hopefully to help uh, uh, Americans who haven't had much engagement with the with Islam or, or, or Muslims to understand that there are social service organizations uh, inspired by the uh, Islamic faith who are doing things that are very similar to what other social service organizations do, and so hopefully build some understanding across faiths as well. Mm-hmm. Amir, do you believe that the field is generating the level, the volume, the quality of research that is needed to better inform philanthropists and nonprofits about best practices and models? Well, we certainly, uh, at the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy, um, have put, put a lot of emphasis on research and the importance of understanding this important sector of our lives. And um, so we're trying our best to generate research and with colleagues in other universities and other research institutions collaborate quite intensively to create more knowledge about you know, how Americans volunteer, how they give money, how they engage in uh, voluntary activities of all kinds, ranging from helping others to expressing um, their their beliefs. Um, but we do think that there's not enough research. When mm-hmm. you think about how much research there is on a daily basis coming out of uh, the business sector or how much information there is about the government, the third sector is is kind of still way behind in terms of generating data and information about what's happening. Yeah, yeah. Here's a hot issue in philanthropy, and that is many institutions, especially cultural institutions, They've received significant grants from individuals uh, whose source of wealth is now being questioned, and there's a lot of pressure on them to uh, refuse those gifts or, in some cases, even return them. And this is just not a case of the Sackler family and the opioid crisis. I mean, this is extending to things such as uh, individuals who have made their fortune in oil or coal or munitions. What is your opinion of how these organizations need to go about finding the correct course of action? Well, it's a fascinating issue, and we live in a fascinating time where there is an intensive scrutiny uh, of such uh, of the origins of wealth and wealth in general because of our growing consciousness of inequality. But in some ways, it's not new. When Andrew Carnegie was building his libraries all across the United States, there were some municipalities that rejected his funding because mm-hmm. they felt that his business practices did not reflect the values that they held at the same time. So in some ways, it's not new. And it is a it is a important challenge for the leaders uh, and the community of these organizations. Uh, and I think what leaders are noticing is that they have to engage their broader community more intensively. So the people who work for them, their boards, their broader um, community that is interested in what they do, let's say that if they're a museum, and they have to show some moral vision and help interpret, you know, is is money that comes from coal or uh, carbon-based industries n- no longer palatable, and is the community willing to make the sacrifice of uh, funds in order to eliminate that kind of funding for what they're doing? And so, it, it's 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 a fundamental and profound leadership challenge, and and a, and, a, and an ethical uh, conundrum for for leaders who. I think have to reach out to their broader community more intensively and help interpret what this means for their particular organization. It is not an enviable situation to be in, but 
you know, this is this is also uh, a moment to step up to the challenge. Yeah, it really is. And uh, I've had a number of, uh, of those leaders on the show who said they have their gift acceptance policy under review right now. Yes, yes. But uh, it's one thing to have it under review and another thing to decide what you're going to do because it's, it's, a, it's a tough situation. And sometimes it's a fluid situation. It is. Because it is. things change, societies change, environment changes, and things which were acceptable three years ago may not be acceptable three years from now. Indeed, I think, and this is what was seen, that is seen in the UK, for example, because after the big scandal at the London School of Economics, mm-hmm. there was a royal chartered review of uh, gift acceptance policy across universities, and at Oxford University, most recently, that has a very systematic uh, review policy. The faculty were up in arms about a, a donation from a relatively mainstream donor, mm-hmm. um, um, Stephen Schwartzman, because they felt that the whole private equity model was somehow inimical to their values, which is a quite, quite, quite a remarkable statement if you think about how mainstream private equity has become to our business life. Yeah, yeah. Let me close with this, Amir. If we were to have this conversation again, let's say in 10 years' time, what do you believe would be one or two things that would be at the very top of our agenda relating to philanthropy and the nonprofit sector? You know that's a wonderful story, uh, a wonderful question. So let let, let me um, let me be Pollyannish in some way, or e- extremely optimistic. So I think in ten years, uh, a lot more of our economy will be automated. Mm-hmm. Al- algorithms will solve a lot of everyday problems for us. So that the things that we're going to focus on are really those things where uh, we can c- care for each other and and express our generosity. Uh, and express who we are in terms of what we want to give to each other and to the world. So my sense is, my hope is really, that there will be a a profoundly deeper appreciation for philanthropy as something that is uh, valuable and something that we need to nurture and and think about more systematically as increasing parts of, you know, all the serious things we do today are taken over by um, machines and, and robots for us. Maybe a notch or two up on the Maslow hierarchy of it needs, as you're saying. <laughs> exactly. So that's that's you know that's that's another way to interpret that as well. So we will be fo- focusing hopefully on our higher faculties, and those are all about generosity and caring for each other. Well, I certainly do like ending on an optimistic note. Well, Amir Pasek, the dean of the Lilly School of Philanthropy, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. Share with us some of the information that visitors can find on your website and also maybe how they can sign up for one of these courses that you offer in those 18 cities you spoke about. Well, absolutely. It's very easy to find us. If you just Google Lilly Family School of Philanthropy or go to our website, which is www.iupui.com, edu, um, which is the, our home institution, uh, you can find all the information there as well. Um, we are in 18 cities around the country in terms of our fundraising training, uh, which uh, is, is quite accessible as well and also available online. But uh, we're not hard to find if you just uh, Google Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. Yeah, and you got some great information on that website, I will add. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Amir. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. My pleasure. I'll be back with more of The Business of Giving right after this. The Business of Giving can be heard every Sunday evening between 6 and 7 p.m. Eastern on AM 970 The Answer in New York and on iHeartRadio. You can follow us at Biz of Give on Twitter and at Facebook.com slash Business of Giving.